a doctor in the house. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And Doctor. Doing a lot of things, unfortunately, it's just been a little bit overwhelming and trying to. There's so many different moving parts, and uh, now that I'm not doing the live radio show per se, a lot of the material that we're going to cover that's normally uh, taken care of. It used to be taken care of by uh, Super Don, but anyway. So just going through the questions and and preparing for some of those things, and then even from last week, um, a lot of the things that we discussed last week that were going to be put online have not been done just because the person that's supposed to be doing that stuff has not been able to uh, do so. So there's some changes that uh, have to be made in order for us to keep up with the growth that we're uh, experiencing right now. So I appreciate your patience with this. Anyway, um, so there are a couple of different questions that came up and some of these are recurrent questions. So let me just take care of a couple of administrative things first, and then I'm going to get into the questions. So, um, since MM, I see you right there. I have not forgotten you. You probably got an email from me, but uh, if you haven't, don't worry. I haven't forgotten you. I've just got to find some time in the schedule right now. So um, I will take care of that. There are certain other people that have um, voiced their interest in the uh, coaching program as far as becoming coaches. The problem is we've got we've we've got so many moving parts, and we have to make sure that we've got everything set up and the three coaches that are right now, the coaches that are getting scheduled, um, it, it's been really, really pretty exciting. But they're experiencing challenges that we have to make sure we address before we start bringing on more coaches and before we also have to then, if we have so many coaches and we don't have enough people that are contacting us, looking at the at the feeder mechanism, how to let more people know about what we're doing, how we're doing it, uh, the solutions that are out there. Um, we've got so many videos right now of uh, patient successes that um, just haven't had time to get those all together. So anyway, the point being that I appreciate your patience. Um, everybody that's in on this call right now, this is uh, the normal broad. Okay, so this is actually, I'm thinking, for some reason I'm thinking I'm on IADFW right now. So that's how frazzled I am right now. So we have a Facebook page at Advanced Medicine. It's uh, called Advanced Medicine. It's a group, and it does not need any criteria to join. So I would suggest that if, I think what's happening is with the IADFW, so many people were, requesting to join because people were inviting them, but they can't join because they're not IADFW members. So advanced medicine, which is, um, there's, there's no qualification there. Uh, it's just somebody that may be interested. If you guys are active in advanced medicine, then you can invite people there. And then from there, if they end up uh, joining the IADFW, then they can get into the IADFW that way. But advanced medicine, the Facebook page is really where we need to be focusing on. I'm doing this on my regular, uh, on the main clinic Facebook page only because there's a lot more people there to, to let them know that we're live. So the point being that if you're going to invite people, I think that may be the best place to, to uh, do advanced medicine to invite people to the advanced medicine Facebook group page. Um, and if there's anybody that's uh, it oriented, that's listening to this, that has an interest in helping that is looking for a new opportunity, um, you know, please get in touch with me and I need somebody to help 
us do some of the stuff from from an IT perspective. So, but again, it's kind of specialized. It's not it's um, it's not generic stuff. So anyway, I will put that all aside. If you're waiting to hear back from me, you will be hearing from me. I haven't forgotten you. I know I sent out a couple of emails to some people that may be waiting on me and letting them know I haven't forgotten you guys. I just need to get these other parts moving in the right direction before we come back and I address your questions and the things that I talk to you about because it's all dependent upon um, getting these other things moving in the first place anyway. Uh, okay, so there were there were a lot of questions that came in, but there was a couple of questions that were specific. If there's so many different questions, I'm looking for commonality, like if there's a certain theme that's being asked more. And so there was a great question that came in, and actually it was, I'm only going to read the first time a person asked this because there's probably been two dozen people that have asked similar or the same exact question. And so the question, so the person that originally asked this question, and then again, as I mentioned, I'm not going to mention, uh, read all the different versions of the question, but is uh, what Demi Watson. And Demi had a question regarding heavy metals. So the question was, Dr. Patar, is it true that chelating for mercury with ALA which is alpha lipoic acid, low-dose cutler style, can cause some people to have more severe yeast problems than before. If so, does the chelation actually cause new yeast, new yeast growth, or is the releasing of mercury just releasing yeast that was already there? If this is a case of worse before it gets better, or can chelation cause permanent or long-term yeast exacerbation? Is there an end in sight? P.S. Will you please answer my question by email in case I'm not able to tune into your webinar. Okay. So the question is a very, very good question and brings up actually additional thoughts that should actually be addressed, additional components regarding this that should really be discussed. So let's first talk about, um, actually, I'm going to, mentioned two other questions that are related to this that I will go into as well since they're in the same subject um, and same subject topic. Uh, Sumia Boghadi from Canada asked, how much time is needed to chelate lead and mercury? And then let's just address those two questions. But they basically, they're, they kind of go hand in hand because they're asking about um, one, yeast exacerbation, secondary to removal of mercury, and secondly, how long does it take to remove uh, mercury and, and lead? So this topic I've talked about extensively in the past. There's a DVD for the IADFW members on advanced medicine that's streamed that you can watch called Heavy Metal Toxicity, the Hidden Killer. But I will go through a couple of the basics as far as fundamental components that are necessary for a, a basic understanding of how to remove metals. Not, not how, not the how to actually remove, but from a patient's perspective, how the process works to remove metals. Now, it was very interesting that I had a conversation just uh, a day or two ago with a medical student, and she was mentioning to me that the professors at her school were talking about chelation, but their advice to the patient that, had a clear indication for, or symptomology at least, for heavy metal toxicity was, let's do a test, and if there's no metals, then 
you don't have to worry about it, but if there are metals, then we'll address it. And of course, this medical student is aware. She's rotated with us, and she's actually one of the health coaches. And what was interesting was she had already had a discussion with this attending physician about the aspect of non-excreters. Now, the, the medical attending, the, the, the professor, the, the teacher in this case, who should know, and I find this to be such a common problem, most doctors don't understand this non-excreter phenomenon. They think that if you test and the metals are there, then you've got a problem. And if you test and there's no metals there, then there's no problem. That's the furthest thing from the truth. So this is the same mindset that goes along with every time I test or every time I look at fires, I see fire engines. Therefore, I conclude that fire engines cause fires. Okay. It's a, it's a simple association that, okay, if there's heavy metals present, then the person and they have symptoms that they have a heavy metal issue. And if heavy metals aren't present and they have symptoms, well, this must not be an issue. Okay. This is like seriously, seriously diametrically 180 degrees opposed to really what the truth is. Autistic children, Alzheimer's patients, cancer patients, they have the same physiology. This physiology is a physiology of non-excretion. They are non-excretors. Everybody has mercury in their body. I don't care what anybody says. The facts are this. Every human being on this planet has mercury. The problem isn't the mercury. The problem is how well can we get rid of that mercury? And the other issue is it's not the natural mercury that's occurring in our society that we're dealing with. In other words, when I say naturally occurring, you know, fires, um, when you have, or, or volcanoes, you have massive amounts of mercury in the atmosphere uh, or projected out there when these volcanoes erupt, for example, or, or when forest fires occur. Combustion of fossil fuel, that's one of the biggest sources of mercury vapor. But then when you add to it things like mercury preservatives within uh, vaccines and mercury outgassing in amalgams and dental amalgams and mercury uh, toxicity in the fish that we're eating from the methylmercury. So you give all these additional causes of mercury being introduced into the, into the environment. That's a massive problem. So it's not so much that it's mercury that's a problem, but it's the amount of mercury that's being inundated into our physiology. And then you have certain genetic predispositions for the inability to excrete like the COMT lesion, APOE, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme deficiency, glutathione transferase, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. The point I'm making is that the ones that can't eliminate, that's where the problem lies. And those are the people that have cancer, those are the people that have autism, those are the people that have Alzheimer's, and there's other chronic diseases too. But they have a characteristic uh, where they are, their bodies are not capable of eliminating as well as certain other people can. Now, when you go and test people, and you see a person dumping a bunch of metals, you say, oh, my God, this person has high metals. You want to start treating them. Well, that's fine because they have high metals. But it's the person that's not dumping metals and has a symptomology, that's the critical person. Why is that the critical person? Because that person can't get rid of the metals. And so it's, they're actually staying in the body. The body naturally wants to get rid of the metals, but when they can't get rid of them, when the body can't get rid of it, that's where the problem lies. And they are people that have a genetic predisposition, not a, not a genetic disorder. It's a genetic predisposition. What do I mean by that? Some people are genetically predisposed to being taller. So they may be better for basketball playing or, you know, something else that tall people do. Or some people are genetically predisposed to be stockier. So they would be more like a running back or, 
you know, so my point is that that doesn't mean that that's, that's a genetic weakness or genetic strength. It's just a genetic predisposition. If your mother was tall, your father was tall, both your grandparents were tall, chances are you're going to be tall. That's a genetic predisposition. That doesn't mean that you have, oh, my God, the disease of being tall. It's just a genetic predisposition. Some people have red hair. If mom has red hair, dad has red hair, both grandparents had red hair, most likely the child's going to have red hair. That's just a genetic predisposition. Okay, that's all that means. So it's an environmental trigger that causes the genetic expression to manifest itself, but it's not the gene itself that's dictating it. Okay, it's a gene and the, the environmental trigger that causes a gene to express it in a certain way that causes an individual to now express that phenotype or express, the, express that characteristic. So a genetic predisposition is just the, the likelihood that um, if you have flat surface versus a sloping surface, water is going to have a predisposition to roll down, the rolling down of, uh, on, the, on the sloping surface than it would on the flat surface. So genetic predisposition just means that there is a higher likelihood based upon the, the historical component, the, the, the components that make up that individual for them to have the same type of problem. That's all it means. It does not meaning, this isn't about uh, genetic um, outcome, okay? It's not saying, well, it's your genes. You can't help it. You can't change it. If you can't help it. This is how you were born. It's your genetic code. No, that's not how it works. So again, we come back to the heavy metals having an issue for everybody, but certain people can clear them better than other people can. And the people that can't clear them as well, those are the people that have a genetic predisposition for the inability to excrete. So they're what I call non-excreters. They tend to not get rid of these metals normally. Now, we go in and we facilitate this person to have the heavy metals removed. In fact, you know what I'm going to do? This gave me an idea. I'm going to do a webinar, and unfortunately, there are certain slides that I have to create that would have be that would be necessary to explain this. I did the first advanced medicine seminar um, probably seven, eight years ago when we did the small little community ones, and this was a very, very hot topic. People loved this uh, particular presentation that I gave, and I haven't given it in a long time, but I will pull up those slides, and I'll do a webinar on this so people understand. But there's basically... If you, th if you think of a grid, um, four squares, you've got uh, excreter and non-excreter on, on, let's say, the, the y-axis. And on the x-axis, you have healthy versus um, disease, okay? So there's four different combinations. You can be healthy non-excreter. You can be healthy um, excreter. You can have... Fitness. You can have, um, excuse me, sorry about that. You can have um, an excreter and a non-excreter that are both healthy, and then you can have a person with a disease that's an excreter and a non-excreter. And so those four categories that we're talking about, we would have to look at this and say, okay, which is the worst scenario and which is the best scenario? So I'm not going to go into that right now because it makes more sense if we were looking at the diagram, and then you'd be able to understand it. But suffice it to say that you can be healthy and be a non-excreter, and you can be healthy and be an excreter, and you can be um, have a disease and be a non-excreter, and have a disease and be an excreter. So which is the worst combination, which is the best combination? So I'll leave that for you to contemplate, and we'll do a webinar on this uh, non-excreter phenomena. But the point that is relevant here, coming back to the question that was asked, which was about the uh, removal of heavy metals, it will cause an exacerbation of, um, of yeast, and also how long does it take to treat a person. 
if we start talking about the length or the duration of treatment, remember, it's going to depend upon multiple factors. First, it's going to depend upon genetic predisposition, as we just talked about, right? We're going to, if a person doesn't have um, any genetic predisposition for the inability to excrete, in other words, they're good excretors, mom and dad are both good excretors, they have no um, polymorphisms or anything else that, that creates a process, a metabolic process hindrance, then these people will excrete very, very fast. Um, if you have a person that has many of these types of uh, blocks, if you will, if they have a physiology of a person that has cancer or, or autism or Alzheimer's, then they, it's going to take a lot longer for them because their bodies already can't get rid of this stuff. So that's one reason the facilitation of uh, removing the heavy metals from them with such, something such as a chelator uh, becomes very, very important. In a person that doesn't have a genetic predisposition for being a non-experienced, in other words, they normally dump, they're probably not going to need to worry about it so much because their bodies are already naturally getting rid of this stuff, so they don't have any of the issues that some of the people that are non-experienced would have. So think of this as a canary in the coal mine. The canaries and coal mines were used because they were more susceptible and more sensitive to the environment as far as the carbon monoxide outgassing in these, in these tunnels while they were um, mining for coal. So the coal miners would take these canaries down with them, and when the canary would fall over dead, they would know that the carbon monoxide levels inside the tunnel were getting too high and they, that the canaries, because they were sensitive, that's why they call it, you know, being, being uh, the human canaries, the ones that are more sensitive to the environment. When the canaries would fall over dead, that would tell the coal miners to get the heck out of the coal mine because the, meth the, um, the carbon monoxide levels were getting too high and too dangerous. So there are certain people that are human canaries. They're more sensitive to the environment. They're the ones who get sick. And this is where the cancer, the autism, um, the, the Alzheimer's populations fall into that category. Now, how long does it take? It based, it's one based upon genetic predisposition we talked about. Second, it would talk about the type of metal, okay? There's never a situation where it's just one metal, another metal. It's when you have one metal issue, you're going to have multiple other metals. You may not see all those metals coming out at the same time. Mercury, for example, is the last metal that comes out. When we were treating autistic kids in, the, in, in, our, in our first uh, decade of doing this, we've been doing it for 23 years now, but in the first couple of years, what I noticed after collecting, uh, we have over eight and a half, nine, almost nine million data points now, I noticed that antimony, arsenic, tin, and nickel were the first four metals that were coming out, mostly seen in the hair. But mercury was always the last thing. In fact, it was like when you, you know, all these metals come up and they get higher and higher. It, it's amazing that mercury is always the last one. Now, there's a definitive DVD called Heavy Metal Toxicity, The Hidden Killer that had over 70 hours worth of information that was then edited and condensed down into the highlights. So it's about two hours long and it explains all this. And this is all available. You can buy the DVD on, um, on Amazon. Uh, I think it's like $89. Or you can, um, if you're a member of the IEDFW, you're already getting it streamed, okay, um, at advancedmedicine.com. And this goes into a lot more details. But... The first one is genetic predisposition. The second one is the type of metal and how many metals you have. So we don't know how many metals the person has, but it's usually, um, a, it's, it's never a metal by itself. So a metal, one metal with another metal together have a much greater damaging uh, potential. And to give you an idea, there's not been very much research on this, but there was a study done in the 1970s that looked at lead and cadmium and mercury. And... Basically, the, the, the science is that if you talk about LD, that's lethal dose. LD stands for lethal dose. So if you have an LD17 of substance X, that means that enough substance X being put into 100 people and 17 of them would die. So if you were talking about 
uh, LD7 of substance Y, that would be enough substance Y, whatever Y may be, that you put into 100 people, that seven of those people would die. Okay, so that's a measurement of how damaging a metal can be or any substance can be. But we're specifically talking about heavy metals in this particular case. So an LD1 of lead, meaning enough lead to kill one out of 100 people, and an LD1 of mercury, enough mercury to kill one out of 100 people, if put in the same 100 people, becomes an LD100. So please understand what I just said. If you have enough lead to kill one out of 100 people, and you have enough lead, uh, enough mercury to kill one out of 100, 100 people, and you put that same amount of lead and mercury in a 100 people together, meaning that same 100 people, now you put not just lead or just mercury, but both lead and mercury, same amounts, you will kill all 100 people. That's how synergistically destructive these heavy metals are. And, and many other chem chemicals and components that there are out there are very, very destructive, but when you put them together, they're not usually as destructive as lead and mercury, and then cadmium you add to it, it make, makes another exponential factor higher. So it becomes very, very important to remove these heavy metals. So now we've got genetic predisposition will, will define your ability to excrete, the, the type of, uh, the, the number of metals, or the type of metal, and then how many of those metals are on board, the speciation of that metal. Okay, speciation, I mean, is it ethyl mercury, is it methyl mercury, is it phenyl mercury, the type of mercury, is it inorganic or organic mercury? If it's organic, then we're looking at the ethyl, methyl, phenyl, etc., etc. Then it's at what time during the development was the person exposed? Is it a chronic type of uh, exposure or is it a one-time uh, exposure? Mechanism of exposure. Was it an inhalation process? Was it an outgassing process? Was it injected in the body? Was it in ingested into the body? So all these factors are not playing a role. So when you start looking at all these different things, when the question is asked, how long will it take? I have no idea how long it will take. It's taken me, you know, we've done tests. We always do tests before and after, and then we'll see. When I say after, we do it usually after 20 treatments. And we've had many people that I would have thought, you know, they'd be totally cleared up, and they're not, and they keep on going and going and going, and it may go out a couple of years. And we've had other people that had sky-high levels, and I thought, well, this person's going to take years for them to, to uh, get rid of their metals. And after 20 treatments, their metals are almost down to nothing. So that's when I started realizing and discovering that people that have very high levels of heavy metals on initial challenge, they actually go through treatment way faster because their bodies already have a natural tendency to release them. So now when we put a kilo around board, they, they release pretty fast. The ones that don't, i.e. autistic children, when you do heavy metal testing, you don't see a lot of heavy metals coming out. And those are non-excreters, and those people are going to need more and more and more treatment because virtually nobody comes to us that are, that's very, very healthy in good condition, no, no health issues. We don't have people like that to come to clinics, right? That's a, that would be the ideal type of patient to have, but we don't have patients that come when they're like, people usually come when they're sick, when they're hurting, when they're, they've got some kind of a diagnosis already. So when people come in like that, when, they, when they're sick, because that's what a doctor normally sees, they don't see healthy people. When you have a sick person that comes in, and I do metal challenge testing, and I have a person that has no metals, and I have a person that has high-level metals, which one am I going to think is, from a, from a triage standpoint, which one is a more urgent situation? So I, for you guys that are listening to this, you know, give me some, give me the answers that you think. Remember now, we, we talked about that four grids. Remember the, the grid with the four squares? So I've eliminated the healthy people from this conversation because doctors don't normally see healthy people. But when I do the webinar, I'll explain this. We're not just talking about people that come in, they're sick. You have one group of people that has showed very high levels of metals, you have another group of people that show no metals. Which one is a more urgent situation? Which one actually needs more help? 
they're both sick. So that's not the criteria that we're talking about. We're talking about the ones that are dumping a lot of metals that have very high levels of metals or the person that doesn't show any metals. Ah, it's not a big deal. Doctors look at the test. Yeah, well, they're not heavy metals. It's not an issue. Which one's a bigger issue? Gabrielle said, the one who shows no metals. That is exactly, exactly right. Um, the ones without the metals showing up on the test. Tiffany said that on Instagram. Hey, Tiffany, there you are on Instagram. So I've gotten a couple people to, to, to respond. Amy said no metals, no non-excreter, no metals. That's right. You guys already understand this, okay? Now, most doctors, unfortunately, don't understand this because the one that shows no metals, they're retaining it. That's the issue because the one thing you know, the person that's dumping metals, at least they're getting rid of it. At least it's coming out of the system. So you see sky-high levels of metals. Sure, it's going to be a little bit alarming, but the good news is whatever you saw on that test is not in your body anymore. You're getting rid of it. It's the one that has a disease that's not getting rid of it. The doctor gets a false sense of security. They see the test up. I don't see anything. It's not a metal issue. Wrong answer. They can't get rid of it, right? So that's what the problem is. That's why I made the analogy where every time I see fires, I see fire engines. Therefore, I conclude that fires are caused by fire engines. In this case, they say, well, um, there's a bunch of fire engines here, but there's no fire. Must not be a fire there. Well, fire engines are going to come in response to a fire or somebody called. So that's not a good way of saying, well, because there's a bunch of fire engines, but I don't see any fires, I'm going to leave because somebody smelled smoke or something was happening. That's why the fire engines came. So again, the point is we want to be concerned. We want to have a high index of suspicion. We want to have a very high threshold here of, of, uh, of suspecting that there's an issue when somebody has symptomology and no metals coming out because that is the person that is retaining them, okay? So when the question is asked, how long does it take? There's no way of knowing because of all these factors and many other factors too. So we talked about genetic predisposition. We talked about speciation of metals. We talked about the type of metal. Um, before we even talked about the speciation of that metal, we talk, talked about how many different metals are, uh, are present and the synergistic destructive nature of those metals. We're talking about the time that the individual was exposed, the duration of exposure, uh, the mechanism of exposure. All these things dictate how long it's going to take to get effective treatment at removing heavy metals. Okay, So that's the first part. Now I'm going to go into and talk about the um, use of DMSA versus DMPS and what's currently going on with the FDA and why this is a very important component to talk about is because there are certain ways of removing heavy metals that are safe and there are certain ways of removing heavy metals that are not safe. And so we will talk about this. Now, there are... There are many different ways of skinning a cat, and there are many different chelators out there. And even while I'm on here, just while I was scrolling through for the comments just a second ago to see how people had answered the question, there were a whole bunch of people asking me, you know, is this substance working, removing heavy metals? Is that substance removed? This is all gimmickry, uh, all garbage, basically, okay? There's so many different products out there supposedly remove metals. And let me tell you something. If that was the case, we wouldn't have the issue with heavy metal toxicity right now. I can tell you that many of these things may help to remove heavy metals from your gastrointestinal tract when you eat something and you take it, and it's an oral chelator. We even have something like that that will help to bind to reduce the amount of mercury that you're ingesting, like if you're having seafood. But that is not removing heavy metals. That is not removing heavy metals. You cannot remove heavy Once heavy metals are in your body, 
they don't just simply come out. If they were going to come out naturally, if, you're, if you didn't have a genetic predisposition, they're going to come out normally. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to take any kind of product. The body's going to get rid of it. But for the non-excretors, they can't get rid of it. And these supplements and stuff that there's people talking about, they don't work that way. So let's talk about this thing where the, the person, um, the question was asked about the alpha lipoic acid. Now, what is alpha lipoic acid? Or what is vitamin C? Or what is glutathione? These are all great, great antioxidants. They're not chelators. Chelators, by definition, are, are is something that binds to the metal and then pulls it out of the body in the same, um, without being used, without being utilized. So the body can't consume it. But glutathione is consumed by the body. Okay, glutathione is a potent antioxidant, ubiquitous throughout the body, found primarily in the hepatocytes, but it's in every cell. Uh, alpha lipoic acid, again, utilized by the body. Vitamin C, utilized by the body. A true chelator is not utilized by the body. You put in however much into the body, it comes out the exact same way, except that it's not bound. It hasn't, the body hasn't consumed it, hasn't used it up. It hasn't gotten a pound of chelator, and not only has a half a pound of chelator that comes out of the body. No. You put in a pound of chelator in the body, a pound of chelator is going to come out of the body. It's going to be bound to metals, but it's still going to be uh, the same amount of chelator that's going to come out. Okay? Whereas these other substances we're talking about, they're, they're phenomenal, but they're not chelators because the body utilizes them. Now I'll do a I'll do a, um, maybe I'll do a video on, on that part of it alone. But I want to get into this the chelators themselves, the DMSA versus the DMPS. Okay, now DMSA is dimercaptosuccinic acid. If you guys want to see this um, on, you know, with the diagrams and such, um, you can go to autismdefined.net. I think there's a couple of videos that actually show the structure of some of these molecules. But DMSA is dimercaptosuccinic acid. DMPS is dimercaptopropanosulfonate. Now, DMPS um, is the substance that when you call poison control centers, they would tell you, contact the compounding pharmacy and get DMPS. So DMPS is a very, very effective chelator. Now, there are websites out there that talk about how bad it is, how dangerous it is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the case, okay? It, it comes down to this. Um, you, it's like blaming um, obesity on spoons, all right? A spoon is very effective at feeding you. Picks up the soup, you know, when you're trying to pick up soup with your hands with a fork, it's not very effective. But as a tool to pick up soup, it's very effective. A spoon is very effective. So now, all of a sudden, all these people start becoming obese, and now you're going to blame it on the spoon, that the spoon is causing the obesity because now more people can get this, use a spoon to, to eat their soup or, or drink their soup. DMPS is the same way it's gotten a bad rep because people say, oh, my God, it's a bad killer. It does this, it does that. No, it is a phenomenal tool. But like any other tool, if in the wrong hands of the wrong individual, can become damaging. All right? So when we look at DMSA now, DMSA is dimercaptosuccinic acid. DMPS, these are both synthetic amino acids. I want, you to, I want you to understand how ludicrous what I'm about to tell you now is. DMSA, DMPS are both considered to be chelators. DMSA is actually not a true chelator because the body does utilize it. But the key, the, the, they're both synthetic components. The FDA said the DMSA, the one that is considered to be a neurotoxin in certain parts of the world, that is that creates problems, and I'm going to explain the problems that it creates, that DMSA you can get without a prescription. DMPS, which is highly effective at removing mercury, which has never been considered a neurotoxin in any country, DMPS, they say, oh, you need it by prescription, which is fine, it makes sense, but so should DMSA be by prescription. And now the FDA... Is, is trying to prevent the importation of DMPS into the country. Now, what is the difference between DMSA and DMPS? DMSA and DMPS are exactly the same, except 
that at the bottom of the molecule on the DMSA, the dimercaptosaccinic acid, and I want you to remember the name for a second, saccinic acid, remember that last word, dimercaptosaccinic acid. So at the bottom of DMSA, instead of uh, the, the bottom components are two hydroxyl groups, OH groups. This is kind of hard to explain this on a, uh, without showing some diagrams. Maybe I'll have uh, my video editor see if he can um, edit some diagrams in here. But basically, DMSA has two hydroxyl groups at the bottom portion of the molecule compared to DMPS, dimercaptopropanosulfonate. DMPS has two sulfhydro groups at the bottom. That's the SH groups, okay? So you have these two molecules, DMSA, DMPS. DMPS has two sulfhydro groups at the bottom. DMSA has two hydroxyl groups at the bottom, OH groups. Now, the problem is that when you take DMSA into the body, the body sees DMSA, remember it's dimercaptosaccinic acid. So some of you that might be biologists, or that might be doctors, or know some biochemistry, remember organic chemistry from, from your college days, you might remember that succinic acid happens to be, or the other word for it is uh, succinate, but succinic acid happens to be the largest substrate of what? Can anybody, does anybody remember? Can anybody tell me? If somebody gets this, I'm going to buy you guys lunch, whoever gets this. Don't look it up. Well, I'm going to give you guys 10 seconds to see if anybody gets this. Succinic acid is the largest substrate of what? Nobody knows the answer to this. Okay, not a problem. Good. I don't have to buy anybody lunch. Succinic acid is the largest substrate of the citric acid cycle, also known as the Krebs cycle. This is the way that we take in foods, nutrients, whatever, and it gets converted into energy that our bodies can utilize. That whole process is basically called the Krebs cycle. Okay? So... We have the Krebs cycle that is responsible for taking things that we ingest and turning into fuel so our bodies can use it. Now, the problem is that succinic acid, which is the largest substrate in the citric acid cycle, in the, in the Krebs cycle. Citric acid cycle is the same thing as the Krebs cycle. It's another name for it. So the largest substrate in the citric acid cycle, the largest ingredient that you put into the Krebs cycle, the largest fuel source that, that the body, when we eat, the, the largest fuel source that comes into this uh, Krebs cycle is succinic acid. The problem is that when you take succinic acid into the system and the system utilizes the way it's supposed to, it, it goes through this whole camp, the whole electron transport chain and produces a substance called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, and then when it releases one of the phosphates that releases energy, and that's how we are able to walk and talk and do all the great things that we do. The, the, the problem is that the body sees other items that are similar to succinic acid and may try to use those items to then also produce energy. Now, DMSA is dimercaptosaccinic acid, okay? It's almost identical to succinic acid. It's just dimercaptosaccinic acid. It's a small little change, and when, you, when the body sees this DMSA that's being put into the body, the body will start to use a DMSA in the Krebs cycle. Remember I said to be a true chelator, you can't, it can't be consumed. Whatever amount goes in must come out, except it's not bound to metals. So when you put DMSA into the body, the same amount does not come out because the body's utilizing it, Somewhere, I, I don't know what the, what the actual number is or how much it's utilized, but best case scenario, just figure if the body's using succinic acid uh, for normal metabolism and then it sees something that comes in that looks very similar to succinic acid. Okay, let's say it picks it up half the time. Problem is, what, whatever amount it picks up, when, when it picks up DMSA into the citric acid cycle, it causes an inhibition of F, uh, NADH2. 
NADH2, these are, I'm getting into too much biochemistry here, but basically it gets picked up in the, NAD, in the electron transport chain, uh, inhibits NADH2, which then further causes a disruption of the electron transport chain and prevents the formation of adenosine triphosphate so you don't have any, uh, the same energy production. If you look at children that have been treated with DMSA, you will see that they're hyperactive and then they go into a flaccid response. They go through this peaks and troughs and peaks and troughs based upon the dosage of the DMSA. Now, that's, I stopped using DMSA when I learned in 1997 or 1998, uh, it was five years before I testified in front of Congress, so it must have been, 19, must have been 1999, I guess, um, that it was considered to be a neurotoxin in certain parts of the world. And then when you take into consideration that here's the, these two components that are supposedly removing metals, but the FDA that allows for these metals to be used in vaccines and in amalgams, the same agency that says, oh, this stuff is safe, says, yeah, you can, get, you can use DMSA without a prescription, no problem, but DMPS you can't. Well, in my mindset, again, it's like Einstein said, right? You cannot solve a problem with the same mindset that created it. The same mindset of the FDA that says, hey, mercury is not an issue. You can leave it inside your vaccines. You can leave it inside your dental amalgams, and it can be used in this and that and the other. And then they also say that you can DMSA you can get without a prescription. There's a reason for that, okay? It should probably send off alert signals in your mind. DMPS is not utilized by the body. Whatever goes into the body comes out the same way. Now, DMPS is, I, w I wish politically it was DMSA that was the one that was so effective because everybody is easily accessible and you can just tell people go get it. But now with the DMPS, as, it, as successful as it is and as, as impactful as it is, um, they're trying to prevent it from coming into the United States. And that's, that's obviously a big problem. So how do you effectively chelate an individual that has mercury? Right now, we still, you know, we have supplies of DMPS, but a lot of doctors are, are, are running out, and I don't know what we're going to do after we run out, and hopefully someone in the legislature, in the legislature will figure this out and, and open that back up. But, you know, I don't hear anybody talking about it. All the compounding pharmacies that make DMPS, they're under the gun right now because of the FDA is trying to prevent them from bringing it in. So the point being that it, it's, a, it's a massive issue, but DMPS is a very effective chelator. It comes into the body, doesn't inhibit, first of all, the body doesn't see the cyclic acid. It doesn't get utilized, it doesn't get eaten up, it doesn't get consumed, whatever goes in the body comes out. And the same is true with EDTA, ethylene diamine tetracyclic acid, except EDTA is not used for mercury, it's used for lead. And you've got many, many other types of chelators. Now, I'm sorry if this sounded like it was just like, I threw a whole bunch of stuff together because this wasn't supposed to be like a presentation webinar, I'm just answering a question. So this was kind of like a, um, a verbal um, vomit session. I just vomited up a whole bunch of information, and hopefully it made sense to you. But DMPS, dimercaptor propionyl sulfonate, the, the uniqueness is that it's a true chelator. It does not get consumed or utilized, or, or um, um, it doesn't get burned up in the in in metabolism like DMSA has does because it's like succinic acid. It's seen as succinic acid. And therefore, DMPS doesn't cause the up and the downs and the up and the downs that you see with, um, with DMSA utilization. We won't use DMSA and haven't in over 20 years just because it is a neurotoxin. So now, what does this have to do with the question that was originally asked about the yeast aspect? Well, it has everything to do with it. So when people are, first of all, yeast is an opportunistic, okay? So this, we'll edit this into a new tape, okay? What is the issue with yeast and mercury and removing of removal of yeast? I'm sorry, removal of mercury. Why do we say that the removal of mercury will? Uh, or why did this person say there's a? So why is there an association of 
yeast exacerbation with the removal of mercury. Well, again, we have to come back to that same thought process of the fire engines and the fire story, right? We call, because we see an exacerbation of yeast when there is um, removal of heavy metals, people think, oh, removing heavy metals will cause yeast to be growing more, or when the heavy metals release, they release yeast, or you know, what exactly is going on? So I'm going to read the question again just, just as a summary to make sure that we that I stated the way that the person asked. So the, the way it was stated was, um, does chelation actually cause new yeast to grow, or is it the releasing of the mercury just releasing yeast that was already there, okay? So neither one of those two is actually what's happening. So it's not that removal of mercury is causing yeast to release, and it's not that it's creating yeast to grow, but let's understand what these substances actually do. Mercury is an immunosuppressive. It suppresses immune system. Yeast is an opportunistic. It needs a compromised host to set up house. We all have yeast, but certain people that, are, um, that have more toxic load in their system, the yeast becomes an issue, okay? You see yeast in patients that have cancer. You see yeast in patients that have uh, AIDS. You, have, you see yeast issues. These are like, you know, very prevalent issues of yeast. So uh, Carposi sarcoma, um, the, the white tongue, you know, with the candida, with the thrush, what they call oral thrush, you'll see this for people that have compromised immune systems. And people that don't have compromised immune systems, well, you're not going to see that, but that doesn't mean they don't have some yeast. They may have some much lower level yeast because the body is able to keep the yeast at bay. Now let's take the situation of what happens when you're using a chelator. The chelator is removing metals. When you remove the metals, you have a lesser toxic load in your system, so your immune system starts, comes back up. It starts to rev back up. And by doing that, you should see less opportunistic things, such as yeast or anything else for that matter that's opportunistic. Bacteria, viruses, spirochetes, mycoplasma, parasites, these are all opportunistic infections. In my seven toxicities, I call this the third toxicity, the, the, the opportunistics. Now, when you remove metals, when you remove mercury from the body, you have a lesser load in the body, and then you, that means the immune system should start coming back up. So you should have a lower level of yeast. But why do people see a higher level of yeast? Well, the higher level of yeast is not related to effective removal of metals. Um, that question that person mentioned was they said using um, the Cutler protocol, that's using DMSA. And this is the exact point that I was going to make again about the neurotoxic aspect. DMSA is being utilized, as we mentioned before, in the system. It, the, the body, it, it doesn't, it's not a true chelator. You're not reducing the, um, the load of the metals. Um, well, you may reduce some load in the metals, but you're causing a neurological impact to occur because that flaccidness and that hyper-responsiveness that you see with DMSA, that's, again, based upon the NADH2 inhibition that causes the disruption of the electron transport chain that I talked about earlier which then ultimately prevents the ATP from being produced. So the point is that when you effectively de detoxify the body from mercury, you shouldn't see an increase in yeast. So then why is it we see that? Well, it's because of the chelator that's being used, one, such as DMSA, or two, because the person is being, dis the, the system is being disrupted, the, the immune system is starting to rev up and it's becoming excited and it's starting to recognize these things that are problematic and it's starting to do its job 
And that conflict between the immune system recognizing the foreign substances and doing its job is perceived by the individual as, oh my God, I got a yeast exacerbation. No, your immune system is finally recognizing the yeast as being foreign and it's not kicking its butt. And what you're experiencing is feeling worse, foggy headed, achy, lethargic, listless. Those things are not because all of a sudden the treatment released more mercury uh, or released more fungus or yeast issues. It's because now finally the immune system is starting to wake up, seeing and recognizing the, the, the yeast that shouldn't be there and it's starting to fight it. So it's one or the other issue. It's either the chelator that's being used. If it's DMSA, it's causing that flaccid aspect and causing a, a worsening. And, of course, then you're going to end up having more exacerbation of, of any type of opportunistic issue, including yeast. Or two, it's because the immune system is waking up and it's actually doing its job. And that's what the turmoil that you're experiencing. So um, I have had people, you know, how would you know the difference between the two? How do you know which, whether it's the turmoil that you're experiencing or it's actually that you're using the wrong type of substance and it's actually working? That's a great question. Um, the simple way is that is a person going to continue getting better or continue getting worse? Because if you have a, if you have a sudden change in a person and then it goes back downhill and continues worsening, then you obviously know that it's not an effective uh, treatment protocol. And this is where the head map comes in again. No matter what you're doing, do the head map, do whatever treatment you're doing, do the head map again, and then you'll see with the scores, is it getting better or worse? And it's not just once, because you can do it second month, third month, fourth month, and you're looking at the graph and seeing which way. Is the trend going up or is the trend coming down? If the trend's coming down, the numbers are coming lower, that means you're on the right track. If the numbers are going up or they're going up and down, that means you're not making progress, it's getting worse. If the numbers are going up, you're clearly getting worse. So this is a way for you to decide if the treatments that you're actually utilizing, whatever they may be, and I'm seeing on Instagram a lot of people asking certain types of treatments, you know, will this work, will that work? You know, I'm not here to promote what works or what doesn't work. I'm just here to educate you so you understand that you need to be aware that just because somebody says it or because it's written in some marketing material doesn't make it so, doesn't make it the truth, okay? And many of these things will bind to metals in a Petri dish. But in your body, it's not a Petri dish, okay? These metals are um, adhering to your, um, to, to the proteins, okay? If they're adhering to, in the case of mercury, for example, they're adhering to the sulfhydro groups that cause the, um, that basically are, are responsible for maintaining the morphological integrity of all the proteins. So now when you go in and you pull these, the metal off, the, the sulfhydro groups, if it's not mild enough uh, to do it gently, then you can cause a disruption in that self-hydro group, which will then cause protein denaturing, which is not conducive to life. So a perfect example of that would be British analucite, an awesome chelator for mercury. It was actually used as a nerve agent, anti-nerve agent during World War II, I believe it was. But British analucite is a phenomenal chelator. I mean, you talk about a phenomenal chelator, it's awesome. The only problem is that one out of every five people that use it will die because it's so good, it goes in and binds to the mercury and pulls it off the self-hydro group, but ruptures the self-hydro group, breaks the self-hydro group, and that protein, the protein that uh, maintains integrity, its morphological structure based upon that sulfhydro group, as soon as that sulfhydro groups are, are torn apart with the, with the British analucite pulling the mercury out, it causes the protein to denature or unravel. And as that unravels, you know, a person ends up basically dying because you, you, know, you, you have to have that protein integrity in order for to maintain life. So protein will denature at 105 degrees, 106 degrees, something like that. So this is a chemical degradation or um, chemical denaturing of the protein because the stability factor that holds the protein in its morphological uh, structure to allow it to have the characteristics it does 
when it's disrupted, that bond that's holding it together, once it's broken, it unravels, and that's not conducive to life. So British analucite, awesome chelator, 20% mortality rate. One out of five people will die. DMSA, it's not a true chelator. It won't do this. DMPS doesn't cause any death, but it's very effective at pulling mercury, but it can only get to the mercury at the terminal end of the protein structure. So there's many sulfhydro groups in a protein structure, but the terminal end of the protein that's kind of like a tail hanging out of the protein, there's a sulfhydro group there, and the DMPS is able to grab, grab that and pull it out. What about... Glutathione, Dr. Bittar, what about alpha-lipoic acid? These are great, great antioxidants. Glutathione is a great mopping up agent, okay? Glutathione is made up of cysteine, glycine, and glutamic acid. Phenomenal to put into the body as an antioxidant, natural antibiotic, blah, blah, blah. As a chelator, it does not work. It will never work. We've done the studies in, in our own clinic with patients. We've given them chelators like DMPS. We've given them glutathione um, and measured the output of metals, and you see a bunch of stuff coming out with the DMPS. You see nothing coming out with the glutathione. Then you give DMPS and give glutathione, you get even a higher level because glutathione actually acts as a mopping up agent. So the, DM, the glutathione is not strong enough to pull the mercury off the sulfhydro group. The DMPS is, but as it cleaves the mercury off the terminal end of the uh, protein structure, there's all this mercury free, uh, free floating, and then it can go and re-deposit uh, somewhere else. The glutathione is great as a mopping up agent. As the mercury comes, is cleaved off the terminal end of the protein, the glutathione can bind to it and then help to excrete it that way. But as, a, as by itself, it will never pull the mercury off the terminal end of the protein. And again, I've got the studies to show. I've got the actual you know, uh, lab study on, on each of these patients. We did it like a dozen patients to show this. So glutathione by itself, great antioxidant, but it will never increase um, heavy metal load by itself, uh, yield by itself on, on a post-challenge test. DMPS phenomenal, EDTF phenomenal. But when you put the EDTF and DMPS with the glutathione, you can have a really, really good effect. But you don't do that right off the beginning. But if you do that, you can throw somebody into kidney failure. So if you want to learn more about this, simply watch the DVD, Heavy Metal Toxicity, The Hidden Killer. And I actually show the slides, okay, of people. I give case studies, uh, the story of Karen and how this person actually, if any of you read my book, you'll remember Karen's story. And in the Heavy Metal DVD, I actually go through Karen's story and explain what was happening with her test. Because we were removing more and more mercury. Her metal levels was going, were going higher and higher and higher. And all her symptoms are going lower and lower and lower. And then when we added, the, when, when her mercury wasn't showing up at all anymore, and she was almost symptom-free, then I added glutathione to the IVs. And boom, we saw a yield. Uh, even more mercury started coming out. So this has already been, this is not conjecture. I'm not making any of this stuff up. You know, I'm so amazed at how many doctors are online and how many people are online talking about stuff that they have absolutely no clue about. They've never done any testing. They're just reading something and regurgitating old information. This is not information I'm regurgitating. This is information that I have, I have bled for and I've sweated over over two and a half decades. And I can tell you that this is something that is completely being ignored by, by mainstream medicine. And a lot of doctors that are doing chelation or doing heavy metal testing that I would hope that they would understand this don't understand this concept. So... As, I mean, I've been talking about this for 52 minutes. Hopefully, we'll get three to four different videos out of this. As a summary, DMSA versus DMPS versus British Analyticide versus, you know, Defiroxamine versus all these different chelators out there. DMPS, for me, is the best one for mercury. EDT is the best one for lead. And then I use between EDT and DMPS, I can pretty much get every metal. Um, I don't use things like British Analyticide because I, I don't want to have one out of my five patients, you know, die because the treatment was so effective. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, they talk about... Um, how effective chemo is at killing cancer cells. Uh, the problem is it kills most of the patients too with it, right? Uh, it's, 
that's that's one of those type of uh, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but the, you understand what my point is. This is one of those things that you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Is my point, and you you want to make sure that whatever treatments you're doing are effective, but also are safe. And that's one of the problems that many of the treatments that are being utilized for different things um, today in medicine are not safe to be used um, because they're blocking pathways, metabolic pathways, as, as opposed to enhancing them. So. Um, I will stop here and then I'll just try to answer any comments or questions. And I'm going to go to Instagram first because Instagram um, ends faster. So let's see here. I don't know what advanced TRS is, um, but anything that's oral is only going to have a limited amount of uh, of effectiveness. And these things. These oral chelators that are on the market, what they're doing is they're binding to the metals that you're ingesting in there. So if you're having, you know, something with high metal content, it'll bind to it and keep it from absorbing the body. But it's not going to pull the stuff out of the body. It just simply can't because the food isn't, you know, it doesn't, it, there's no mechanism for it to get to to be able to access those metals in those vectors that we're talking about. Okay, so this person's asking again about TRS. What about make they're, they're not polluted with environmental? It has nothing to do with environmental contaminants. Okay, cilantro is a great, great natural chelator. Um, it's not a chelator, sorry, it's a concentrator. It's a natural concentrator. So people talk about how this great, you know, you should take these supplements with cilantro. The problem is because it's naturally in the environment sequestering mercury, when you measure the mercury levels in these natural concentrators, you're actually taking in a higher concentration of mercury and then through the process of osmosis, higher concentration gradient to a low concentration gradient, you're actually putting a net deposition of mercury into your body. I love cilantro, but I don't take it from a therapeutic perspective because naturally it's going to grow um, in the environment to concentrate mercury. Now, if you're growing it in, a, in hydroponics with no mercury in the water, you know, yes, then is it possible that it could be beneficial? Absolutely. And maybe these things that you're talking about, maybe they have a benefit that way. But they are not going to bind to the metals that are already in, incorporated within your protein structure. It's just not going to do that, okay? It can bind to the mercury that you're ingesting, if you're having seafood and you know it's high level mercury, you take some of this stuff. That's possible. We have a supplement for that. We have a we have a protocol for that. Our D2 protocol is actually for people to take while they're eating fish or you know seafood or anything else that might have higher level mercury to bind to it, so that uh, it doesn't get absorbed in your body. But everything else, I mean, you, you, it doesn't work that way. And let's see. See, hi, hey, my fellow vegan activist, I shared this live because he is speaking on how our body releases toxins. Oh, somebody's somebody's sharing that. Link. Okay, I was gonna say because I'm not a, I am not a vegan, so just thought I'd correct that, but they won't call me a vegan. Okay. Thank you for speaking truth. Spitting truth. You you're welcome for spitting truth. Oops. I think that's all the all the comments on what do you think about nutritional yeast? Nutritional yeast is good. Nutritional yeast is, is a is you know Saccharomyces boulardii is a beneficial yeast. You know it's it's important to remember we probably don't want to go into a judgment type thing whether something's good or bad because everything has a there's a there's a 
potentially there could be a a good component from anything. Like somebody would say, well, how can you say from some type of infection, how can you have a good component from that? Well, you know, it's actually keeping your immune system revved up and, and making sure everything's uh, on track and, and, and working. Um, I, I try, as I'm getting older, I start to realize I can't pass judgment on certain things because either one, I don't understand how, how the system works yet, you know, to that. A lot of people will try to explain why something's good or bad. I'm not going to do that because I, I see how there's a balance in the system, right? And and uh, like when somebody has a symptom, when they eat something, they have all these symptoms like gluten sensitivity or food allergy sensitivity or, you know, they get hives or they get this or that. And then they say, you know, why is this happening to me? Well, that could be a blessing because it's telling the body's telling you, hey, don't do X, Y, and Z because every time you do it, it causes a problem. And so it's giving you feedback. And so embracing what's happening to us as opposed to fighting it, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of wisdom in the body. Okay. There's a lot of intelligence that's innate within our own systems that we tend to ignore and we tend to sacrifice and we tend to subdue and, and cover up and, and, um, minimize We shouldn't do that because the body is a finely tuned, unbelievably efficient machine. And any other machine that I know of besides a physiological system that would take the same type of abuse uh, as we abuse our bodies, it would not be functional after a few years. So that's why I call God the ultimate engineer because he, you know, this is a ultimate machine. And not just the human physiology, but, you know, all, all physiology, all, all animals and plants. It's incredible how the system works. Now, of course, humans are a little bit more, um, I don't want to say advanced or evolved if anything we're probably not as evolved but you know because we have the mind that we can think we tend to overanalyze things that we tend to uh get in our own way and create our own problems and that's something that we need to be aware that that the body's own innate intelligence should not be ignored in fact if anything it should be embraced so um that's one reason i try not to pass a judgment of of right and wrong but uh tiffany to answer your question yes saccharomycosis boulardii is a very very uh beneficial yeast as an example, uh, Dank Beard Farm says, will you speak at any conventions or seminars in the Long Beach, Los Angeles, Orange County area? Um, well, we had the Advanced Medicine Conference in Pasadena just two months ago. And uh, for those of you that are interested in getting those DVDs, that are getting, or, or we may just make it streaming. We're not sure yet, but that's going to be available coming up very, very shortly. Uh, if you were at the event or you weren't at the event and you wish you were at the event or you want to have, make any comments, go to advancedmedicineconference.com, advanced, advanced with a D, advancedmedicineconference.com, and uh, leave a comment there, and there will be a video and such that will be released hopefully in the very near future uh, showing some of the highlights from the conference, and then we'll have um, – we're going to try to do – try to let people know um, – but that the, the, that those programs are available, those lectures are available, it's 16 lectures, and it's going to be sold as a set. Pretty amazing event, and uh, a lot of people that were there said that it was a transformational event for them. So um, we will be speaking again. Uh, we'll have the conference next year again on May 23rd and 24th, 2020, also at the Pasadena Convention Center. That's probably the closest to the L.A. County area. Um, Actually, I'll be speaking at the Truth About Cancer Conference, too, which is, I think, also in California this year in October, too. Um, that's those are the only ones that I know of for sure. 
Okay, so let's see. Yeah. Let's come back here to Facebook. Well, we got people from everywhere here today. Hi, Kimberly. Uh, Yip Chi Wan from Malaysia. Hi, Yip. How are you? Rita from the United Kingdom. Hi, Rita. Maria from, I'm not sure where. Mexico, Spain, somewhere. Gracias. MM said, no biggie. It is a biggie, MM. Don't worry. I, I, I haven't forgotten you. I'm going to take care of that. Kimberly said, uh, loved my coach. That's awesome, Kimberly. I'm not sure who you had. I think that might have been. Tell me who you had, Kimberly, as your coach. Peachy says, hi, Dr. Joe. You are my motivating force. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's such. That's very kind of you to say that, Peachy. Amy said, if one is starting a new job and it's with the hospital, how does one opt out of vaccinations? Yeah, that's going to be a difficult one. Uh, you, you might have to get quite belligerent, and there are people that have actually lost their jobs like that. Um, you know, Amy, that's, that's a very, very tough question to answer. Uh, more and more hospitals are – well, there are more people that are becoming aware – so, I mean, you might be able to get an attorney involved or, uh, you know, show that you have titers. You could, you could always get titers done of whatever they want you to get vaccinated from. And if you have sufficient titers, then they can't force you to vaccinate because you've already seroconverted and so you're carrying the immunity. Um, those, are, those are some ideas. Wondering how your German, how my German Shia, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, if you're talking about German, my German, I, I can't really Oh, oh, yes, my German Shepherds, yes, they're doing great. They're doing great. Thank you. Um, Mary said, hello, my hero. I've been doing this 20 years with my civilian vaccine-injured son. Proof here. We are patients of Dr. Lee. Thank you, Mary, for, for making those comments. Non-excreters. Hi, Dr. Char. Made it. Rushed through breakfast. Gabriel from Instagram. Baby sleeping in the Philippines. Oh, from the Philippines. Question was, do you know any research that links tongue tie to vaccines given to women during pregnancy? Yeah, so today's an interesting show because we've got people from literally all over the world, multiple different countries. Usually we have two or three different countries, but we've got people from everywhere today. Um, okay, so, Gabrielle, can you... Can you uh, explain what you mean by tongue tie, T-I-E? Is that where a person has a problem speaking, um, or is that some, some other definition of tongue tie? So please uh, send that through to me right now um, or here on the Instagram feed, on the Facebook feed, so I understand what that means. 
Yeah, the flu vaccine. Okay, Amy, if you're talking about the flu vaccine and the hepatitis vaccines, you know, hepatitis is easy to deal with because if you're seroconverted, they, they can't make you take it. As far as a flu vaccine, it's ludicrous in the first place. Um, but I know people that have quit their jobs because they were they were mandated. This was a couple of years ago, and there have been, you know, people that have gone to court and gone as high as the Supreme Court to deal with this issue of mandatory vaccines. So it's not the first time uh, this issue has come up. It's, it's come up before multiple times. Yeah, so you guys really got this. Gabrielle got it. Kimberly got it. Amy got it. Linda got it about the non-experience. I'm proud of you guys. You guys get this. Richard got it. Okay, good. All right, Jill says, we did two years of chelation with a son with autism at your clinic in Charlotte. We had to stop due to financial issues and couldn't afford to continue. My son always had higher levels of antimony, arsenic, and lead. He had little mercury coming out. My son had the highest levels of excreting from stool versus the other means. Yep. Yeah. Antimony, arsenic, lead. Uh, antimony, arsenic, tin, and nickel are actually the, the first ones that come out. Uh, mercury is always the last thing to come out. And we've had people, we've, I've seen people now go three, four years. And even, even the ones when I thought, well, maybe they don't have any mercury, when I started second-guessing myself, but I still continued. And then all of a sudden, mercury would start pouring out. I had a little child from the UK, and his first name was Rishiban. And uh, he, had the, he had the highest level. Well, when we started treating him, he had absolutely nothing that showed up. I mean, like virtually nothing. And he was severe autistic, nonverbal. And we treated him for a couple of years, and, um, you know, no mercury came out. And we were about to start the recovery protocol. And then just in a whim, I felt maybe I should do one more challenge test. And we've done so many challenge tests on him already. And then his dad came in for the consult from England and said, Dr. Tuck, can we do one challenge test before we do the recovery protocol? And I said, yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. We did a challenge test, and his mercury came back at uh, – his, his lead came back at uh, 100, like 105 or something like that lead level and his mercury came back at um i think it was like in the 30s or 40s micrograms per gram creatinine and anything less than three is normal more than three is considered toxic so i thought this has to be an error we repeated it and his lead came back at like 247 and anything more than five micrograms per gram creatinine is considered toxic and his uh, mercury was up to 87 micrograms per gram creatinine so i mean that's the highest level of mercury i've ever tested in the child um, and it took four years to get to that point before the mercury started coming out. And, of course, right about that time, he started, uh, his first word was mama to his mom. And uh, then, you know, um, they they stopped treatment because of uh, logistics. But he was no longer self-abusive and running out in the middle of the highway. And, and so he, he had gotten, a, he, when he when they stopped treatment, he was better. He wasn't. He wasn't neurotypic by any stretch of the imagination, but he was able to recognize. He would recognize our nurses. You know, he was no longer self-abusive. He wasn't destructive. He wasn't pulling us, you know, he wasn't defecating wherever he was. He wasn't running out in the middle of traffic. Um, so there was, there was a lot of improvement, but it was all associated with before we finally started seeing the, the mercury coming out. Susan says DMPS. Yep, DMPS, that's it. The DVD is... Uh, Janet asked about the name of the DVD. The DVD is Heavy Metal Toxicity, The Hidden Killer. And if you are a IADFW member, you have access to that uh, 
DVD streaming already, so you don't have to purchase it. Just um, that's one of the fringe benefits of being an IADFW member. You have access to all this stuff. So uh, if you go to the uh, dashboard on your advanced medicine dashboard and go to the left-hand side and under the education, the DVDs should all be listed there. And if you're not a IADFW member, you're an, just an advanced medicine, reg, you know, somebody who's registered there for free, seriously consider becoming an IADFW member because with that you get the Map to Get Ahead program, which has a uh, you know, $2,407 value, and you get that for free just by becoming a member of IADFW. And for right now, if you join, it's a lifetime membership instead of an annual membership. So, you know, consider that if you have not done so. By the way, for the IADFW members, we're going to be going online here in just a minute. Uh, we'll, we'll finish this and a uh, whole bunch of videos getting ready to be released for the IADFW just for just things that we've, we've covered in the past. Melissa says, blessings to you. We are so behind. Thank you for your work. It's true. Chemo kills a patient. Yes. Yes, we are very behind. Um, Bylan says, Dr. B, is it okay to mix all the supplements and make gummy with it for each day? I'm having a hard time getting my daughter to take them. Um, Bylan, the, the issue is this. You can do that with certain things, but you don't want to do that with um, minerals because sometimes the minerals can create an oxidation type effect. Some minerals can, especially like copper or selenium if you're taking it individually. But generally speaking, that's fine, okay? And Sometimes mixing it with yogurt or mixing it with, um, like I don't, when you say making it into a gummy, I'm not sure what that means, but generally speaking, most of those things are fine. But what you don't want to do that is with, uh, with uh, if it's a high level of copper, uh, I would try to do that separate. Just put copper in with some juice or something like that. Um, but pretty much you can mix everything else up with the exception of the minerals. Gabriel said, the question was from Instagram. You asked me for to remind you here on the Q&A about whether tongue tie is in babies. Has any research linking this to mothers getting a particular vaccine during pregnancy? Uh, no, Gabriel, I remember that question. Um, oh, okay, when babies are born with the lower part attached under the tongue, lower part of their tongue. Okay, so... Yeah, I'm not familiar with the term tongue-tie. That's why I was asking that, Gabrielle. So I, I understand now what you mean. Um, I am not familiar with any research that would associate that condition, tongue-tie, with vaccines. However, um, I do believe that there are many, many anomalies that we are seeing today that we may not have seen in the same prevalence or at the same level of prevalence in the past which I believe is related to the manipulation of the environment of the uh, individual from vaccinations. And when I say manipulation of the environment by the vaccinations, remember that we're the environment that we live in, what we're breathing, what we're being exposed to, that's part of the environment that, that we live in, but also the environment inside our bodies that, that our bodies are living in that's also an environment. So the food that we eat, the water we drink, how it affects the internal system, our um, nutritional balance. When these vaccines come in, they, and they throw all that stuff off. So it's not just the external environment. It's also the internal environment, okay? So it's important to know about your external environment, but it's also important to control your internal environment. And the way we help to control the internal environment is obviously by the things we eat and drink and making sure they're as clean as possible, 
how we, the thoughts we put in our head, you know, exercise, all these things. This is all very, very important. But to answer your question specifically, Gabrielle, uh, I am not familiar with any specific uh, links between the, the tongue-tie condition that you're talking about and vaccines. But um, there are many, many, many conditions that are linked to vaccines. And there, there's a, there are two books out, actually, that have a very complete summary, I would say, or, or at least uh, the beginnings of a very complete summary uh, as far as the current research and the injuries related to vaccinations or, or why you don't want to uh, do the vaccinations. Um, I think it's Miller's Review of uh, Vaccines or something like that is one of those books. Linda said, I had no vaccines during pregnancy and both my boys have tongue ties. Okay. So again, I'm not familiar with this. Is this does this prevent an individual from speaking, or or are you just talking about the little the frenulum underneath the tongue? Um, somebody help me out and tell me because I don't I don't know what that is. Martha says my my daughter had no vaccines during pregnancy either, and my grandson had tongue tie. Yeah. So I I, I think that maybe it's a, um, a genetic predisposition and may not be related to a vaccine thing. So somebody's talking about, uh, Linda's talking about methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme deficiency being associated with that. Yeah. Guys, I, I honestly, you're asking me a question that I have no idea about. So I didn't even know what a tongue tie was. So uh, Dr. B, uh, did you test at ALA as a chelator? And if you did, did you supplement every three hours? Okay. ALA is not a chelator. alpha lipoic acid is a phenomenal antioxidant. And yes, it does have some binding components but again remember to to be a true chelator it must be inert it must go into the system and come out the same volume a alpha lipoic acid does not it's utilized by the body so it's not used as a chelator it should not be used as a chelator you can use it as a binder to facilitate uh, transportation of the metals out in conjunction with the chelator but to call it a chelator is one wrong two inaccurate and three it, it doesn't pull the mercury or metals off uh, the protein structure, if anything, it's just binding to the free-flowing or free-forming, not free-forming, excuse me, for the, the part of mercury, the portion of the mercury that's free-flowing after chelate has already cleaved it, or that hasn't been um, absorbed into the system, but it's still in the process of uh, ingestion. So when somebody eats something that has mercury in it, and it's still inside the gastrointestinal tract, and it hasn't been uh, sequestered by the proteins, and, you know, it hasn't been bound to the sulfhydrobiopia, yet, then it could bind to... Um, it could bind to alpha lipoic. But remember, when I'm dealing with the mercury issue, I'm not dealing with the mercury that they just invest, ingested six hours ago, or 12 hours ago, 18 hours ago. I'm talking about the stuff that was they've been exposed to for five years, 10 years, 20 years ago. So that's why it's important to understand the difference. If, you, if you're talking about acute toxicity right now um, because of something you ate, fine, it may help. But if you talk about acute toxicity because of a, a, you know, a mercury spill or something, that's it's not even going to come close. You need to you need to be doing very big things for that. And a dietary alpha lipoic acid is not going to work. So the only time that I would say that something like alpha lipoic or or glutathione orally would work. And glutathione you can't even take orally because there's no stabilized form of oral glutathione except for maybe the liposomal base. But even then, if you're taking it orally, you're just not going to get the same absorption capacity. So EDTA has a five percent. Uh, yeah, EDTA has about a five percent absorption through the gut orally. DMPS is about a 30 to 50% depending on the literature. I think it's about 30%. Um, it's probably the most accurate. 
But when you do it intravenously, it's 100% accessible, right? And when we do it transdermally, it's almost almost the same. And he said, Doctor, I have my father visiting, and we are watching you, and I've talked about you very highly and gave him your book to read. What I need is he is a Vietnam vet with Agent Orange poisoning. Is that curable? I know the answer. I just want him to hear your words. Absolutely, Agent Orange. Well, when you say curable, Agent Orange is a substance the body's been exposed to. It's It falls underneath the, the second toxicity, the persistent organic pollutants. And it's something that we have had patients that have come in with that. And it's not an easy thing. But, yes, it is. We use a number of different treatments. Um, but basically to help make the persistent organic pollutant component less persistent so the liver can actually break them out and remove them from the body. Absolutely. And... Uh, to your dad, Amy, um, if he's listening, thank you for your service. Okay, uh, so somebody at Martha said, is tongue tie always MTHFR? Yeah, guys, be very careful, okay, because that is this, I can tell you that that methotetrahydrofoid reductase enzyme deficiency is not going to always result in anything, no matter what anybody says, because is that that's just... That would be a very big leap, okay? I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Linda says, I don't know for a fact my boys are MTHFR, has a tongue tie, but none of those are other so-called MTHFR signs like stroke bite, etc. Gabrielle, uh, thank you, Dr. Tar. No worries. Maybe now you have your curiosity for this. It's called ankyloglossia, medical term, and can affect speech also, yes. Thank you, Gabrielle, for for uh, educating me today on that. Uh, Karen says, what can I use to raise my platelet levels? Uh, Karen, platelet levels, there are some things that people have suggested. I have not seen those things to really come to fruition when checking, but, um, you know, it all depends if this is a chronic condition that you're that you're dealing with or something something else and uh, if uh, you're an IEDFW I'll try to give you a more complete answer but there's not much that I know that would naturally increase platelet levels but your body your body makes platelets on its own and if there's a problem where your body's not making enough platelets um, then there's another issue at hand and I wouldn't try to go to Enhancing platelet function, I would go towards enhancing whatever the imbalance is that's preventing the body from making its own platelets. Okay, that 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 makes sense. Uh, Mark said, "Thank you for Claire and I find that Dr. Tar, you're most welcome." Amy said, "Sorry about this, guys." Turn this off. Um, Amy said, "He said you are welcome, and from me, Dr. Tar, thank you for giving hope. Love it, love you, and your hard work. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate that." And Susan said, uh, thank you, thank him for his service. Yes, absolutely. I like to, uh, I had a, I had a, somebody that I said that to, and uh, they said, why are you saying that to me? You also served. And I said, well, that doesn't mean that I can't thank you for the service. And I've actually found that a lot of service members now thank each other for the service, which is, um, which I think is kind of cool too. So, um, but for everybody that has, that has served, you know, your service has, is always appreciated and has been appreciated. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that always our politics may uh, align with those that tell us um, 
how, how we're supposed to serve, but uh, this mere fact that um, soldiers have served is uh, something that I think should, should be acknowledged. And uh, so anyway, I appreciate everyone for that component. So uh, we're at an hour and 21 minutes into this. I'm just going to quickly finish these last couple of comments, and then um, we will take a break for about five minutes and then come back on, on IADFW. Um, okay, I think that's it. There's no more comments. So I will see you guys next week on Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It may be slightly delayed because I will be traveling and um, but I think I should have I think I should have already uh, landed by the by that time. But uh, if I am running a little late, it'll be because of the flight. I'll definitely be on for the IEDFW, which will be um, you know about an hour and a half after that, about 9:30 Eastern time. All right, guys, have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you for joining me. Talk to you soon. Thank you for tuning in with us today. For more information and links on other valuable resources, please visit advancedmedicine.com and medicalrewind.com. Also be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The How Report, and join Dr. Rasha Patar for his Facebook Live broadcast every Monday evening and for hundreds of hours of Advanced Medicine podcasts, which are broadcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and are available in the podcast section of medicalrewind.com. You can find Dr. Buttar on Facebook by searching for Dr. Rashid A. Buttar and on Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram by using Dr. Buttar. Don't forget to head over to advancedmedicine.com and register for your free account, gain access to the HeadMap assessment, and many other free resources available at advancedmedicine.com. Use Dr. Buttar's invitation code 11 and join today. Thank you for your support and for being a part of making the change the world is waiting for.